You're listening to episode 417 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. How are we? David, David, doing well. Ready for another uh, another week, another episode. Yeah, we some interesting stories this week. Uh, we've got four advanced and expensive drones. Drones that are changing the way buildings are designed. A drone and a rover for Martian simulated missions. You know, because we've already flown a drone on Mars and we've got to follow it up. The Army's short-range reconnaissance program with Skydio, a UAV tether that works in choppy seas, an Apple patent for pairing UAVs and controllers, kites that take down drones. That story I put in just because I like the headline. <laughs> it's not what you think, folks. No, it had me fooled. Drones on drone action in your no no we can't say drone on drone action in Ukraine <laughs> no 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 how about aerial dogfighting with UASs yeah that's what I said no you wrote drone on drone action <laughs> that's kind of disturbing <laughs> oh, I thought that'd get a reaction yes folks this is our job we crack you try to crack each other up doing this. So our first story is from um, Scamp.com. Four of the most advanced drones and copters coming to our skies. And, you know, the first one, I question the word drone in this story. Uh, yes, at least for the first one. Yeah. So the first one was the um, Airmen's ex Exturismo. Exturismo. Okay. You, you can say it. You can talk about it. The air winds exturismo. Now I can't say it. The exturismo. <laughs> it's infectious. Yeah, and the this is a flying motorbike, and this article definitely it spent the most uh, ink on on this first one of the four. It's Japanese founders call it a luxury air cruiser, so it's kind of like a looking like a jet ski with uh, you know big uh, quad rotor rotors <laughs> quad on it. jet ski it's something that you fly around so i'm not really sure that it's a drone maybe it more falls more into the copter category but uh, it's uh, it, it's kind of fun looking certainly uh, maximum range of 40 kilometers it can fly for 40 minutes it speeds up to 100 kilometers an hour and can carry up to 100 kilograms 3.7 meters long, 2.4 meters wide, and 1.5 meters tall and weighs 300 kilograms. So I guess that means um, it's liftable, can keep up to 400 kilograms lifting. It has two large fan blades in the front and the back for lift and four smaller fans for navigation powered by hybrid source gas or electric motors. And they're taking orders now for delivery in 2023, which is only four or five weeks away, <laughs> just in time for the holidays. If it gets regulatory approval, pilot's license will be required. Yeah, it's an airplane. All right. And Max, this this item can be yours for a small fee of $768,000 U.S. So... <laughs> I'm not sure how easily this is going to get regulatory approval, um, but then I don't know how far along in that process they are. 
They may be close to getting it. They may be far, far away. Uh, I don't know. But, yeah, this this seems like a kind of a crazy plaything for people that have more money than brains, perhaps. Well, I, you know, having having to look out my window in my office every day at a um, Kitty Hawk um, flyer, you know, that was pretty much the same kind of issue. It's sort of like, I, yeah, you know, I... There will be people out there who will buy this. I mean, the, there are thrill seekers. You know, I, I, I could see a Sir uh, Richard Branson um, wanting to purchase one of these. This is right up his alley. So, but it's hardly a drone. Um, you know, it, it it's an evertol or a vertol. But yeah, I don't know how they're going to call how this company decided to call this article call it a drone. But let's move on to the second one, which is Airborne Drones Vanguard, which is a long-range surveillance drone. Yeah, now we get into the real drones here and at much lower price points. Well, at least for the next two. The uh, Vanguard has a 94-minute flight time capable of 4K video. Uh, With the the top-of-the-line model, though, you can get a continuous 1080p live feed. So that's pretty exciting. But uh, this is not again not something that you'd you'd buy for your kids probably, or if you're a prosumer, if you are if you are looking for bleeding edge technology, and you probably are trying to go into the business with this, and cost approximately forty five thousand dollars. So a modest amount, you know. Um, and then let's go on to the Lockheed Martin Indigo three. Rugged and whisper quiet, two minutes to get airborne, and a flying time of 50 to 75 minutes, depending upon the payload. Now, this, of course, is a military-grade UAS, um, and and it's got a stealth mode. It's quiet. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, cameras, either optical or infrared, are available. I think the coolest thing about this, David, might be that you could you know, say to your friends and neighbors that you own a Lockheed Martin. That's a good point. I mean, how many people can say that? And it's not as expensive as the Airborne Drones Vanguard. No, it's only $25,000. Very good. And last but not least, um, again, not a drone. And this is one we've talked about lots and lots and lots of times, which is the Volocopter 2X, which is a personal telecopter. They are uh, really targeting these towards prospective air taxi operators rather than consumers. Um, that's the uh, the target market for these. Uh, price of on these hasn't been set yet, so uh, you can you can bet it's more than the Lockheed Martin Indigo Three or the or the Vanguard. Uh, but um, I'm curious to see if it comes in at a price point underneath that Airwinds flying motorbike. Or if it's going to create its own unique stratospheric price point. If the target market is air taxi operators, though, I would think it can't be too extravagant in price because the payback period would be pretty lengthy, I would think. Now, I don't know how much tickets for an air taxi of this type are likely to run. That, that'd be another interesting thing to, uh, to find out when that actually becomes a reality. I'm sure that there's going to be, yeah, I mean, you're going to depreciate this thing 
uh, fairly quickly. But it's yeah, I mean, I, I would say three quarters of a million dollars is which is what we were pretty much talking about with that um, aerial bike is probably not far off the mark. I mean, yeah. you could buy a Cessna for less money than that, you know, a, a, a good old 172 or, you know, something like so. And then, of course, you got to buy the infrastructure to go with it. So we'll see. But two drones, one eVertol and a drone should be in quotes in this article. But it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's the, you know, it's it, it's nice to see how the other half lives. Yeah. Because podcasting, we make so much money at. Gee. <laughs> so five ways drones will change the way buildings are designed. This is from the conversation.com. Let's start from the beginning. Creating 3D digital models of buildings, accuracy within a centimeter. I'm not sure how the drones are going to create 3D digital models. Did you get that impression? I was sort of like... Well, I think using the you know scanning technology um, to uh, create the huge data files that you then process in order to generate a a three D model of a building, which I mean it could be useful for different purposes for renovations, maybe. Yeah, well, I, I guess once the building is built, because I was yeah. trying to the way it's framed is this is we're designing a new building. Where does that three D come in? But if you're scanning it for a renovation of an existing building, yeah, that definitely would make sense. Yeah, yeah. But kind of similar to that, the second one is heritage simulations. And this is where drones could help planners visualize things like the final impact of restoration or construction work on a a damaged building, a partially finished building. I think this is similar to the first one in that regard. Um, but uh, they also mentioned some... Interesting applications. Drones have been used, they say, to construct images through theatrical outdoor drone performances at damaged national heritage sites. Um, so that's uh, another potential use for drones with respect to heritage buildings, heritage sites. And of course, we can't not go an episode without talking about drone delivery. So this is talking more about um, how they're affecting the buildings, which is, yeah. you know, um, rooftop landing pads, you know, that buildings are going to have to think about that aspect, recharging stations and delivery docks. So designing new buildings with the infrastructure to support UAS delivery, et cetera. Of the list, this is the one that at least initially is uh, more directly targeted towards the the headline changing the way buildings are designed and yeah i, I think you're right david that, uh, considerations such as these are are going to be more important in the future not for every building but you know who knows maybe maybe residential homes will ultimately make use of you know rooftop landing pads or some kind of portion of the building that's uh, suitable for uh, accepting drone deliveries, things like that. So this is so cool. I, you know, we, we have talked about 3d printers now for, since we started this show, it's sort of been a, a parallel technology. Great 3d printers have come and progressed like UASs have. So, and this is drones mounted with 3D printers. Experiments have been conducted where the drones construct emergency shelters. 
uh, repair buildings without scaffolding. Drones mounted with 3D printers could help create highly customizable buildings at speed. It really is kind of science fiction-y to have these little drones coming along and printing a building. Printing a building. You might need a pretty big drone to do that, though, I guess. Or lots of little drones. Or, lo- or Well, that's a good point. I, I guess it would, would depend in part on what material the 3D printer was, uh, you know, was printing with and how much that weighed and the uh, what the payload requirements would be for that. Because, I mean, you think of a structure, a building, even a small temporary one, there's a lot of mass involved in that typically. And so the the, the drone fleet or whatever it is that's going to could build these things would need to be able to accommodate that payload. But, yeah, this one's fascinating. I, I think... Um, I can envision all kinds of really exciting things with this one. The other part about it is if you think about using heavy lift drones, you know, one of the most dangerous things you can do in an urban environment is put up a crane on top of a building when they're building. And maybe this technology will facilitate, you know, using drones for heavy lift for, you know, instead of having having a crane sitting up there subject to the wind. So, yeah. And the last one is agile surveillance drones with software systems like biometric indicators and face recognition. So you've got a large building area or you've got a large property um, or campus, you know, using the drones for surveillance or safety concerns. Yeah, and that could impact, um, again, sort of the um, the home for the drones, the, the charging stations, the you know, landing docks, things things like that. But buildings, it points out in the article, could become more responsive to intrusions. Skyper Sonic delivers drones, rover, and piloting platforms in NASA's simulated Mars missions. This is from UASWeekly.com. Skyper Sonic rover and drone system will be used by crew members to remotely explore Martian-like terrain. Pretty cool. Yes, there's uh, this thing called NASA's Simulated Mars Mission. And uh, this is going to run for a year, uh, I understand. And it's going to operate from a simulated Martian habitat, something that's 1,700 square feet, uh, that's at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. The uh, crew will be in this simulation, uh, simulated Martian habitat operating the rover and the drone, but they'll be someplace else. Um, in an Earth environment that is similar to to Mars. So it'll be uh, remotely controlled uh, by the crew from within this, uh, within this habitat. And they've already done some testing of this concept, David. This was really interesting about this article was, um, if you need to simulate Mars, you go to Mount Etna in Italy. Um, the volcano has a surface like Mars, and there's no GPS signal on Mount Etna that would be the case on Mars. We take for granted the GPS system now, but the GPS system is a global positioning satellite system. There are going to be no GPS satellites in Mars, um, at least not initially. So that technology isn't going to be useful on Mars. It's so, it's one of those things that you you don't think about and you just automatically take for granted that NASA has to think about when we're deploying people to, A, the moon, 
and B, eventually Mars. Yeah, when I uh, kind of uh, understood this, appreciated this, I guess I should say, um, I mean, thought came to my head is that uh, we're so reliant, everything is so reliant on positioning, GPS positioning, that, uh, you know, maybe setting up a satellite constellation around Mars might be a useful thing to do before we get too serious about sending, you know, inhabitants to that planet. But I ah, will leave that up to NASA. I figure NASA knows what they're doing. Considering we've got a uh, we've got Snoopy orbiting the moon right now, I think we're doing I think they're doing pretty darn good. Mm. Did you not realize that the Army's never had a quadcopter? No, I just kind of assumed they'd been uh... flying quadcopters. Well, evidently the RQ-28 is the U.S. Army's first quadcopter. And this was from thedrive.com. Skydio, they're becoming quite universal as far as a organization goes. You know, it used to be be, um, General Atomics. Now Skydio seems to be everywhere. The RQ-28 is a short-range reconnaissance quadcopter. Yeah, and like you said, it's the Army's first program of record quadcopter drone. The fielding of the RQ-28A was completed um, just a month ago, early November 2022. This was at the Army's Unmanned Aircraft Systems Project Office. That's with the 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment at Fort Benning in Georgia. So, David, when they say fielding of this drone, that means what exactly? That means making it operational? What is... Yeah, it means they're they're developing all of the they're developing all the procedures, etc., um, and, and moving it from a test environment to basically going out into the field. You know, it's where trained soldiers will be operating it. Whereas before this, it would be it would be the unit that was designed for testing. In this case, it's more a day to day operations for this unit, the the 75th Ranger Regiment. And this uh, program, the Short Range Reconnaissance Program, sometimes called the SRR program, uh, the idea there, as I understand it, is uh, inexpensive, rucksack portable, VTOL, small unmanned aircraft that, that can be deployed um, at the platoon level, I guess, for ISR, Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance. The drive, of course, we ha- can't not talk about the greatest website ever. <laughs> um, says the RQ-28 seems to have been based on the Skydio's X-2D drone, and although the Army has not confirmed it. So the X-2D is 12 by 5.5 by 3 inches when folded, and that unfolds to 26 by 22 by 8 when unfolded. So... It's just under three pounds, which is good because, you know, if you're carrying it in a rucksack, you got to carry a lot of other stuff with you. And the Rangers are very self-sufficient, so they would be operating on a front line with carrying everything they need. And the RQ-28A uses a proprietary controller, has a 6.8-inch LED touchscreen, and operators can communicate with that drone up to... 3.6 miles away. It uses a 5 gigahertz wireless connection. And Skydio says the X2D 
can fly for up to 35 minutes, both day and nighttime conditions. So we don't really know if the RQ-28A has the same specs, same performance characteristics, or if, uh, if in fact, it, they know this is a military version of the X-2D. Uh, if it is, it probably has somewhat greater capabilities than the, than the commercial version. And it's probably more hardened and, and secure. I'm sure there's some additional technology involved to make the connection between the controller and the UAS more secure from a data-link standpoint. So. Yeah. Well, the next story was interesting. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked about tethered drones for a long time. And another one of these stories this week where it was sort of like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I didn't realize it. But so tethers tend to be very rigid. The advantage is they provide a consistent stream of power. And we've talked about this for persistent um, UASs. But they are very rigid and inflexible. Well, you put this on a in a ship with a high sea state, and um, you're going to break that rigid tether. So, and this next story comes from um, TechLinkCenter.org. Navy engineers test new slack tether for launching quadcopters from boats. Yeah, I can imagine the a drone tethered to a boat and. You want the drone to operate, be operating at a certain altitude, I guess, and so you spool out the tether to that to that altitude. And if the seas are calm and everything is perfect, and the the tether stays taut and the drone stays where it's designed to be, uh, but if you've got a situation where the seas are rough and the and the boat is pitching and rolling, going up and down, well, yeah, you're going to be jerking the the uh, the drone around on that tether. So that, that doesn't work too well. Well, the Naval Information Warfare Center in San Diego has designed a smart winch tether system. Which autonomously keeps the proper slack in the tether. So um, if you can imagine... Whereas a normal tether where the the slack would be held at tension on the boat, in this case, the tension would be held at the top of the drone. So the drone is maintaining one altitude and the ship going up and down is varying its slackness so the drone can keep stable. It unwinds and winds so the UAV can stay at a specific altitude. Yeah, and I guess the winch, uh, which operates autonomously, adjusts the spool, pulling in tether, letting out tether, by measuring the tether departure angle. What's the tether departure angle, Max? Well, I don't know. It's it's the <laughs> angle the tether departs the ship, I guess. I don't yeah. know. So if the uh, sort of visualize this, if think of it as a kite. If the if the ship goes up, the angle of the tether gets slack gets goes down i guess so anyway so it detects that and autonomously winds or unwinds but they've tested it somewhat they've tested this system in an indoor wave pool and they ha- i guess they have plans to test it further in a wind tunnel yeah i mean it seems like yeah that's a pretty good solution to solve the problem doesn't sound like a particularly complicated solution either no which is sometimes simple is always the best um 
So what they're actually thinking about doing is for the uncrewed Seahawks, um, the ship would be able to use a tethered quadcopter to elevate cameras and expand the line of sight. Just like the old observation planes, they used to shoot off battleships. But how to broaden your broadening your over the horizon viewing? Yeah, so get up higher. You launch a little quadcopter up there, and it you know it goes up and and looks around for every so. Interesting. Um, what's old is new again. So it's like sending up a balloon yeah. with a tether. So our normal disclosure: just because they got a patent doesn't mean that we're ever going to see this happen. But Apple has won a patent for a possible future drone device that was originally filed in Singapore. This one has me scratching my head a little bit, but Apple's been granted the patent. This is for, quote, a system and method for pairing slash unpairing UAVs to and from UAV controllers. Um, Okay. I mean, that sounds really generic to me, but uh, based on a triggering condition, a UAV or a controller under this patent idea could initiate a pairing or unpairing of the UAV to or from a host controller and receive a configuration update from a network to confirm the pairing or unpairing. That's all based on a triggering condition. So what kind of triggering conditions might they see is contemplated by this patent uh at least one of the one of the uavs moving from a location designated as a controlled by the host uac um so in other words if you've got two controllers and you're moving you're you're flying a drone you basically are doing a handoff from one controller to the you one controller will stop the drone will pick up the next controller and that will go forward a second one is a UAV moving into a location in which the host UAC is restricted from controlling the host UAV. Uh, that's a way of um, geofencing, I guess, Max. Mm. And the, the third triggering condition that's uh, shown here is uh, the, the host controller losing signaling capabilities. So I, this is... I'm confused by this, to tell you the truth. So Apple originally filed, like you said, David, this patent in Singapore. That was in May 2020. And then in November 2021, Apple filed the same patent in the U.S. And on December 6th, just two days ago as we record this, 2022, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office granted Apple that patent. And we'll have a, a link in the show notes to the uh, to the patent if you want to take a look at that. It's titled Unmanned Aerial Vehicle and Controller Association. So uh, I, I started to go through this patent, David, and I don't know. It was just like reading. Generic? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. You're not a patent lawyer, neither am I. No, but it also sounds like something. Well, I, I was struggling to... F- understand to figure out what was unique about this patent beyond the concept of you've got two two devices that communicate with each other and how do they and when do they switch yeah yeah i mean that haven't we already figured that out don't we already do that in uh, <laughs> as far as i know they as far as i know they do that all the time in the military handoff uas is off so i unless it involves a 
iPhone or you know I yeah I, you're right I it it does seem it does seem very generic. I'm just curious what exactly the patent office had decided was so different to a warrant a new patent. So yeah. So if any of you you uh, patent lawyers out there or, or others uh, can. Uh... Dig into this, this and, yeah, and interpret this for us. As I mentioned, we'll have a link to the patent in the in the show notes, so you can get to it pretty uh, pretty quickly. Okay, I liked, I really liked the next headline, and this is from the Times of India. Army trains kites to take down drones. Now, when I saw that, I'm thinking, how is that possible? I mean, if you've got some of these, you know, there are these aerobatic kites, you know, you see sometimes that are yeah, highly yeah. maneuverable and stuff. Is it one of those that's, but how far away can you, can a kite get from, you know, you flying it? But this is not what that is, is it, David? No, believe it or not, a kite is a bird of prey. Now, maybe David and I are the only two people that didn't know didn't, that. Well, I did I, you know that I knew what a, I knew that a kite was a bird of prey, but in oh, reading I, in this context, um, reading in this context, it was sort of like I still by when I found the headline went okay, how does this work? And then I opened up the article and went, oh, well, that makes that it's makes a bird, sense. yeah, yeah. So, so a kite is a bird of prey in in the hawk family. Um, Indian and U.S. armies conducted a exercise. And publicly demonstrating how birds of prey are being trained to attack drones. And, of course, we've had this discussion from other countries also where the birds of prey have been using to attack um, quadcopters and drones. I know you're concerned about a quadcopter attacking a part of bird, but hawks and eagles and birds of prey can attack from underneath, they can fly up and grab and, and disorient the quadcopter or the drone from underneath, therefore avoiding the blades and the rotors. So, I mean, that's where this sort of thing comes from. So if you can imagine the birds come up from underneath and um, knock it out to take it out of or recover it, depending upon how that works. And I'm just wondering if, when they're training birds to do this. I wonder what that training process is like, because I imagine that not every bird is completely adept at dealing with a, with a drone with whirling rotors, whirling, whirling blades. So they must have some way of, to tr train them in a non-lethal way so that the, until the bird figures it out or they figure out, the people figure out that the bird's not capable of uh, being trained to do this. Yeah, but you know, I, falconry has been around for millennia. Yeah, I so yeah. I mean, so falcons have been trained to attack other falcons. So I'm sure that this is what's old is new again. So I, I'm sure that someone who is capable, or a renowned falconer, or someone who has knows how to train the animals to do that kind of maneuvering or it might be just instinctual to attack these things from below i wonder if apple has a uh, patent on the kites birds of prey you, you, training. <laughs> no i don't know. sorry but let's talk about dog fighting you know we're, we were just talking about bird fighting let's talk about dog fighting 
Two drones have allegedly engaged in mid-air combat over Ukraine. Well, this is a first and was going to happen sooner or later. But aerial footage from a Ukrainian drone shows that it, what appears to be that it takes down a Russian DJI Mavic. The video is not 100% conclusive, at least not for me. But you see this other Russian, because it's got the, you know, the symbology on it, Mavic getting close to the Ukrainian drone, then perhaps the Ukrainian drone rams the the Mavic, but it ends up going off in a in another direction at a very high rate of speed, and it's kind of hard to tell if it's uh, just leaving the scene as quickly as it can, or if it's uh, been damaged and it's in fact you know out of control and falling away. But it does veer away suddenly. But this isn't the first time that there's been something like this. A few months ago, there was a different video uh, that showed sort of a similar encounter between Russian and Ukrainian quadcopters. And in that video, it really does look like the Ukrainian drone rams the Russian drone. And looking at the video, I think I see little pieces of Russian drone. Or drones. Or drones. I I can't imagine that... In either one of these ramming cases, I can't imagine either drone survives. Yeah, unless the uh, you, <laughs> the ramming drone is uh, armored somehow or designed to, to do this. But yeah, and, and I don't know if the Ukrainian drone went after the Russian drone or if the Ukrainian drone uh, loitered there waiting for the Russian drone to come check it out and then attacked it. I don't know. So, you know, Max, you know what the next step is? What's that? The Ukrainians and the Russians go to Connecticut and figure out how to put... Guns and flamethrowers on. (laughs) Guns and flamethrowers on. Um, From a historical, you know, it's very interesting because in a way it's a progression much like aerial warfare in World War I. Originally, it was um, just observation, and then it was more offensive, and and then, you know, people bringing pistols aboard. I'm sure that we we are talking about drones that are going to be, you know, the loyal wingmen will be offensive or defensive, you know, air-to-air combat or using drones to take out helicopters, etc. So... UASs are progressing along the lines of aerial warfare. It, they're following, you know, they were frigidly observation, and now they're moving on to a more active armament standpoint. Now we've had Reapers and Predators um, be able to fire Hellfires and ground attack missiles, but it's not going to be much longer that will, especially with the, all of the developments in the Ukraine-Russian um, war, um, where... Drones are going to be dogfighting and competing with each other in air for air-to-air combat. Yeah, interesting parallels there, for sure. A video of the week? This is the Snogquam... No, <laughs> Snoqualmie. Snoqualmie. Well, that's why I, I put it in for you. This is the Soquamie Pass Snow. This is a just... It's a nice holiday relaxing... Yes. Really pretty mountain pass 
Interstate 90 through the Cascade Range in Washington State. You haven't been on that road yet, have you? Uh, no. I've been on lots of I-90, but not in Washington State. But th- yeah, this is uh, this is beautiful, it's snow-covered, uh, the trees, the the terrain, the mountains are covered with snow already. This is just out, too. So I assume it's this season because I know they've had snow up there. And it's just uh, really beautiful and, like you say, kind of um, pastoral. Fits, pastoral and fits with the holiday season at the end of the year. It's definitely worth taking a look at. All right. With that, Max, I think we should wrap this show up. What do you think? Let's wrap it up. Thank you for listening. We we really, really appreciate it. You can find us at the UAVdigest.com. We have show notes for every episode with links to not only the news stories we uh, we talk about, but also the companies involved, things like in this case this week, the, the patent, the link to that Apple patent, um, some other resources like that. So check it out. You know, you'll be really upset when you find out that Apple has a patent on fuel cells that will drive you bonkers. Oh gosh, patents. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what else you can, if you want to let us know what else Apple has patents on, you can send it to our Slack listener team. And you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. Likewise, if you have any uh, feedback for us or some stories you'd like us to talk about, feel free to email us there and drop us a line. Of course, you can find us on our social media channels, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Max and I are both on LinkedIn. And so I guess with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max in Connecticut. Thanks for listening.